You guys take note. You guys grow up and live your lives so that you become that guy. So that at the end you would say, I finished well. I finished well. J.O.'s 93, and my goal is he, he mows about half a dozen yards. I said, I want you to cut back every year and mow one less yard so that when you're 100, you're only mowing your own yard. <laughs> hey, you know what? That's, uh, that song we, we just sang, that's, uh, that was so powerful. And that is the truth. That is the hinge of everything we're about as followers of Jesus. If he was just a teacher, if he was just a good example... We've had a lot of those. But, if it's true that He died on the cross for our sins, and in three days He arose, and that He's alive, that's a game changer. And everything about us is wrapped up in this one event. I'm in the ministry, and one of the cool things about that is I have friends all over the world, no kidding, and, and as those friends get up and as Easter begins to happen, I've had pastors from other countries begin to send me texts and tweets and Facebook messages just with this simple message, He is risen. And I reply back that traditional Christian greeting, He is risen indeed. And so from China and from Europe, and as it sweeps across, and I think, well, now we're in the Eastern time zone, so I'm sending that message to, to friends I know who aren't up yet. He's risen. If it's not true, we are the most pathetic, deluded, pitiful, irrelevant people on the planet. But if it's true, and I'm convinced that it is, then that's everything. That's everything. Scripture tells us the only way we step into a relationship with Him based on the truth of that is by faith. Based on His grace, His grace alone, we begin, and not just initiate a relationship, but continue in a relationship with Him just by faith. But if you're like me, there's a place in my life and a time where I thought, okay, I get it, that's cool, but... What is faith exactly? I mean, is it something you have? Is it something you do? Is it something you try to work up? Is it something that's given to you? What about this thing? Faith. You know, a couple of months ago, I just began to look at that and just began to do a word study, and it, boy, it just sent me down this rabbit hole, and just, oh, God just began to open my heart to something I knew in the beginning and am relearning all the time. And that's this, this thing called faith. 
And I believe that so many of us really not sure about it, or we get it, or we think we got it, but we didn't, that I just decided, you know, and I just felt like the Lord affirmed in me, you need to do a series just about faith. And as I began to put that together, it began to fall into place. So next weekend, we're going to begin a brand new series wrapped up on this one idea, faith, the faith factor. And I'm going to draw from the book of James. Uh, I don't preach often from James. Uh, I feel like I would have been good friends with John. I feel like Peter and I would have gotten along. I think I would have liked James, but I don't think we, you know, we're, we would probably have different personalities. But oh my goodness, he just, all through his book, he just kind of brings to light what it means to live a life of faith. So if you're a regular attender here at Calvary, I want you to start reading the book of James. We're going to open it up next weekend and begin uh, really exploring together the faith factor and what that means. If you're not a regular attender, if this is your first time at Calvary or, or maybe first time at church, Easter was the first time that I went to church uh, in years and years. I, had, we won't talk, I was just way away, and I began going on Easter because it was Easter, you know? And I thought, that's even my tradition. There's something in my head that thought, I think I'll get up and go to church. And so some of my friends and I did. Uh, and that just began this whole new adventure. Uh, so I, I want you to know that's totally cool. And if, if you're looking for an entry point, you know, uh, an on-ramp, either for the first time or maybe back into a relationship with God, and you're checking it out, next weekend would be an awesome time. That would be an excellent day uh, to begin or to re-begin, to hit the reset button and start that journey. So we'll be here uh, next Sunday morning at 10.45. Hey, I want to show you something uh, about this resurrection. There is, if you've been up to my office, uh, you've probably seen, or you would have seen this, this painting I want to show you. Uh, actually, I have the print of it. I don't have the original. Uh, this is uh, Peter and John running to the sepulcher. This, this kind of just captures this event. And I've had this up there for for years, and I just love this painting. It was done in 1898 by a guy named Eugene Bernand. And he was a Swiss painter. And the thing that was a little different about him, two things actually. One is that he painted, you know, he would travel all over Europe to catch these, these beautiful moments and just the way he deals with light. I mean, you just get that, right? I mean, look at that. Is that not the sun coming up? I mean, and, and you see the emotion on John and Peter's faces. It's just, I just thought, it's almost like a snapshot of, of that event uh, that's as good as we could have done with a modern camera. You know, I just, I love that painting. But the two things he did, one, is he traveled all over Europe. He took his family with him. <laughs> Uh, and most of the artists back then were pretty avant-garde, you know, they were just different, they weren't family men. This guy was. So Eugene would take his wife, Julia, and his eight children, two sets of twins amongst those, so it can be done um, easily, I think, um, and he would take them all over the place. And the other thing that was a little different than him that set him apart from other artists is that often the subject matter would be something related to Scripture, to his faith. Eugene 
Bernan was a Christian. Not many of the artists where he was in history and in the place where he lived were. So he kind of stood out. And I just thought he brought this moment to life in such a beautiful way. Uh, so here they are. They're running to the tomb. And some of you are familiar with that story. Uh, they're, they're hurrying to get there. And I want you to see what happened when they arrived. And I'm going to read this for you or with you uh, out of John chapter 20, beginning in the fifth verse. They get to the tomb. They run. Um, Peter and this other disciple, who is John, uh, and the other disciple, uh, John, he outruns Peter, and he gets to the tomb first, and here's what happens. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the cloths, but folded in a place by itself. And that, let me just stop, and I'm not going to do, I'm not just going to stop all the way through, but I just got to tell you this. This is so cool because it says, uh, it makes a point to say here these linen cloths, that they were put there exactly the way they had left them. They were still there. And this faith cloth, face cloth, uh, which was, you know, a real common thing, was folded up in a place. It said, it really means in its own place by itself. In other words, you know, everything was exactly the way it had been when they put Jesus in the tomb, but he's gone. There's no body, but the cloths are not disturbed. It's as if he just vanished and left everything just like it was. So, uh, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. And I mentioned last week that I always think that that last line is just kind of out of place. This is kind of funny. And then, what do we do? I mean, here's this big event, and all of history leads up to that. And, and John and Peter are there, and they're like, Oh my goodness, he's not here. And he goes, well, what do we do? Yeah, let's go home. Let's just go home. And they just go home. So they leave. They go back home, and they're, they're thinking about this, and you can imagine as they're walking back, and the sun's just starting to come up, and they're talking about it. So they leave, and Mary, one of the Marys, and by the way, don't let this confuse you, because there are like four different Marys. I mean, there's like all these, these several of these women uh, that are at the cross and that come to the tomb, uh, but at least three of them are named Mary. And that's, that's just, okay, so don't let that throw you and think, was it now, was this, this Mary or that Mary? Uh, this is, we're going to talk about a specific Mary today. But it's just like, you know, at one time here on staff at Calvary, we had three Bobs on staff at one time. And it was so funny, you know, I remember one time I said, hey, Bob, would you lead us in prayer? And we bow our head, and they're all looking around like, did you this Bob or that Bob? And they all start to pray. You know, well, there's three, there's, some, there's several Marys there. It's just a common name. Um, so she comes uh, to the tomb, and it says that she stoops and looks inside. And when she looks, she notices first that the stone is just gone. And when we sing, and you know, there's always songs, this idea of the stone being rolled away, 
you know, it actually says the stone was taken away, and it's very forceful language. Uh, it's not like it was just gently moved away just enough. No, it's like something inside, like an action-adventure movie, just boom, just like that stone was just hurled, you know, it's just gone out of the way. So she looks in and thinks, what happened here? And there are these two angels. And they began this conversation with her. And they asked her, why are you crying? Uh, and who, whom is it that you're seeking? And she says, tell me where he is. They've taken the body. I don't, know, I don't know where he is. And she hears this voice behind her. So she turns. Now, there are two little words put together, which makes me think that she didn't turn and... You know, like, there's this guy right there. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. No, she turns, and she's at the tomb, and the tomb is located inside this garden, maybe like the size of this room. And she looks over, him, and there in the garden is, the, is there's this guy. And she just assumes, oh, that's the gardener. And so she says, sir, if you could tell me where you've laid his body, I'll go get it, and and I'll take care of this, and... It's okay, you're not going to be in trouble, nobody. Let's just, just please tell me. And she's just crying the whole time. And that begins this, this beautiful moment um, where she finds out who he really is. Now, Jesus had died just a few days before this on the cross. He went through this mockery of a trial. He was hung on the cross about 9 o'clock in the morning. And he stayed there till about 3 in the afternoon. Crucifixion is such a gruesome, horrific form of execution. The Persians invented it. They gave it to Rome. They perfected it. It's just an awful, awful way to die. And so many things happened at that moment. I'll just tell you one of them. Uh, scripture tells us that when Jesus died, that the earth shook and that there was a veil in the temple. The temple was where everybody went to worship. And at this particular time, it was Passover. There's the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So at the very moment that Jesus is being crucified, the priest would have been in the temple sacrificing the sacrificial lamb. I mean, you cannot, this is historical. You can check it out within Scripture and even outside of Scripture. In fact, we even have a record outside of Scripture that a genuine earthquake took place at that time, at that exact time. Isn't that incredible? So that happens, and the Scripture tells us that there is a veil in the temple which separates the Holy of Holies from where the other people would be. And nobody goes into that Holy of Holies except the priest. It's a very special place where God meets man. Now that veil, uh, the ceiling there, had been about 30 uh, cubics. Uh, Herod rebuilt this and extended it. 10 more, feet, uh, 10 more cubics would be 40 cubics, which is about 60 feet. And I'm guessing... That means that the curtain would have been about as tall as our ceiling right here. And it would have been about as wide as this part of the platform. And we're told, and we read again, within Scripture and without, historical accounts saying that the veil was woven four inches thick. 
You ever wear like a thick coat or a thick sweater? This was four inches thick. And to test the strength of it, they said they would tie horses on two ends and try to pull it apart, and they couldn't. It was that thick and that strong. And it was hung there that high in the temple. And when Jesus died, schizo, it split, it tore all the way down the middle. And the significance of that is that the way to God has been opened. And you don't need to go through a, a, another person, a high priest or a sacrifice any longer. You can walk in directly to God yourself. That's just one of the things that happened when Jesus was crucified to show and to indicate the new life, the new covenant that we're going to have in him. And then he was buried. Joseph of Arimathea uh, approached the authorities and said, could I have his body, instead of throwing it on the trash heap, which is what they did uh, to criminals' bodies, they just take it to Gehenna, they just take it and just throw it out there. It was just, it was just so dishonoring. Uh, he said, can I have the body? So they began to embalm it. Nicodemus, whom you remember from earlier in John, had brought spices, about 75 pounds. It usually took about 100 pounds of spices. They didn't have embalming like we do today. I won't linger there, but you, know, that you get the idea. They're going to wrap this body up with these layers of these gummy substances and you know, all these ointments uh, to embalm the body. So they, they got it done well enough to get it into the grave before uh, Passover and all these events, they couldn't, they couldn't leave it there, but it wasn't finished. So early, early on Easter morning, these ladies gathered their spices and they make their way to the tomb to anoint and to finish this process with the body of Jesus. Um, and they encounter these angels, they run back to town and they tell everybody, and they kind of disperse among the disciples. Mary Magdalene, we call her, it's really Mary of Magdala. It's a little town on the northwest shore of Galilee, uh, not really very famous for anything, but she was Mary of Magdala. And I think they would say that so to kind of let you know it's not Mary of Bethany or Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary the wife of Clophus, I mean, you know, it's like this other, okay, Mary of Magdala. It's like saying Dan of Knoxville or, you know, wherever you're from. Oh, you know, that guy, he's from. And that's how, so the, she, she gets there um, with these people, and, and this begins to play out. Now, I wanted you to see something that's really fascinating about the scripture we just read. Uh, you know how in English we just sort of use the same words, and we mostly communicate with tone and inflection, and facial expressions, and body language. I mean, we've got vocabulary, but it's not nearly as extensive as Greek was. And this is why I think God chose that specific language in that specific time to communicate His love and the gospel for us in such a beautiful way, because you could be so accurate and so precise. For instance, in verse 5, Scripture says that John gets there, he leans down, and he looks into the tomb. And it uses a word, uh, blepo, which means he just sees it. He physically sees what's going on. And that's all it means. It's a very basic word just for physical sight. Can you see? Oh, yeah, I, I, turn the light on. I can't see. What are they trying? He can just see. So he's, he looks in, and he sees. And that's all. But then... 
Peter catches up, you know, he gets his breath, and he goes inside. And when he goes inside, Scripture says, Peter saw, he sees everything that's inside. Now, it uses a completely different word. And we would use the same word again and again and again. In fact, when it's translated, it's just that we just say the same thing, right? But you don't get this, this little nuance. When Peter looks at it, it uses a word, theoreo, which is the word we get our word theory or theater from. And it's the idea that he looks, but he's not just physically looking around and seeing everything. No, he's looking and he's thinking about it. It's like when you go to a movie, you see the screen, but you see the movie. You get it? Nobody ever says, hey, did you go? Hey, I saw you. I saw you at the pinnacle. Yeah, I saw you at West. Oh, yeah, I was looking at the screen. I was watching the screen. No, you see the screen, but when the movie gets started, what do you do? You see the movie. You know, you get into it. You, you start seeing something. This is what was happening with Peter. He's looking around. He's thinking. He's observing. He's, he's trying to figure this out in his head. And then it says John comes inside. He follows Peter, and he sees. And this is yet a third word. Again, in English, we would just say the same thing. He saw, he saw, he saw. This says idon is a, is a different word, which means to see and to perceive or to understand. Have you ever had someone explain uh, like a math problem to you or a principle or maybe some scientific equation, and, you're, and, and all of a sudden you just you go, oh, I see. You see, what you mean is, you don't physically, oh, you're just now starting to see the, the book or the page. Oh, no, 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 I've been seeing that, but I didn't get it. I didn't know what it meant. And so we just exclaim, oh, I see. Oh, I get it. Oh, I, ah, aha, I see. That's what happened. When John sees, it says he began to understand, not just physically with his eyes, not just intellectually in his mind, but in his heart something began to awaken in John. Now, the very next verse, verse 10, says they didn't really understand all this about Jesus being risen, the the resurrection. That concept hadn't fully taken hold of them yet. But John knew something. He was beginning to think, you know what? Hey, Pete, there's something going on here. I don't think anybody stole this body. I don't I think something spiritual is happening. He began to see and to understand on a deeper level than Peter or anybody else. So they go both go back home, get breakfast, whatever it is they did, and Mary arrives. And I mentioned to you last week, I just love this part of this historical event when Mary gets there because she gets to be the first one to see and to recognize Jesus and the first one to hear him speak directly to her. And the thing I thought about was, why Mary? Why that Mary? Why not one of the other Marys? And That really helps affirm to me this was a historical event because if I were writing a novel or a movie... 
I would have written it like this because, you know, the first person that ever knew Jesus was going to be Jesus, the Messiah, was Mary, his mother, right? You know, and God just, just said, you know, you're going to have a child and you're going to name him Yeshua, and he's going to be the Messiah. And she just, and it says Mary took these things and she pondered them in her heart and she knew she was the only one. I mean, wouldn't it be a beautiful story? Wouldn't it just, oh, just be awesome as a movie if at the end, when it goes all the way around, the first one he talks to would be Mary's mom? Oh, yeah, that's the way I would write it. Say, oh, oh, that is so cool. It brings it all back around full circle. And, but it wasn't. And it wasn't Peter, and it wasn't John, the disciple whom he loved. I mean, it's this, I almost said random person, Mary from Magdala. It's one of his disciples. Why Mary? Why did he pick her? Funny you should ask. This is what I think. First of all, resurrection, and when I say resurrection, I use it almost like a, you know, a term to, to talk about everything resurrection embodies. You know, the, the love, the intimacy with Christ, knowing that he's alive and knowing what that means and the, just the depth and the power of that. You see, I never had a time, to be honest, I, don't, I can't remember a time ever in my life that I didn't believe there was a guy named Jesus and that he died on the cross and that he arose. I kind of always, I saw that. I read that. I knew about that. See, I believed it, but I didn't believe it. You know what I'm saying? I didn't embrace it. And there's a difference. Mary understood resurrection before anybody. And I think God let her in on that because she loved him so much. Resurrection is for those who love him most. On that first Easter morning, Mary the Magdalene stayed. Maybe she feared that to be away from the Lord would put her back in this vulnerable place where she would be open to the influence of demonic forces again like once in her life, and she's thinking, I don't want to go back there. I don't want my old life. I don't want, I can't, I can't risk that. I'm staying with him. I'm just going to stay. Maybe just to stay close by him uh, will mean something. And more than that, those who know resurrection are passionate about Jesus personally. We don't just love going to church. We don't just love, you know, Scripture or Christians or being in this subculture group. No, there's something about Jesus himself that's more than fascinating. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I went kind of back to school just for the week to this training camp to learn how to use some software, the Logos Bible software, which I highly recommend. It's just awesome. But um, I'm an old school guy, and I've got all these commentaries. I've got several thousand, no kidding, books. 
And I thought, wow, all of that and more whoop, is in my pocket in my iPhone. And I don't know how to use it. It's in my laptop. And so I went back to school. And it's so funny. I hadn't been in this environment in a long time. Uh, I'm in there, and the room is evenly divided between old guys like me who've got this, and we don't know what to do with it, and we want to make it work, and we realize, and hipsters. You know, the other half of the room is just these cool guys in skinny jeans and, and big glasses and little, you know, I mean, all this stuff. And no offense if you're here, and no offense to you old guys if you're here. Okay, or if you've crossed over and you're like an old hipster or you're like a real young preachery looking guy. But, you know, the room, you just look around. There's like 50 of us in the room, and, and we're all pretty much divided between those, those two cultures. And it's so funny um, to see how different people talk about this during break. You know, we took these breaks. We started like at 7.30 in the morning. And I know some of you don't feel sorry for me at all because you think, hey, Dan, that's my life every day. Get over it. Big deal. Uh, I also had no trouble finding a parking spot. So you really don't feel sorry for me, right? Uh, But I'm in there, and we're learning these things, and we talk about them. And some guys, you can tell they're different traditions because they've got a go-to subject that they want to talk about. What do you think about Calvinism. I'm like, ah, I don't want to talk about that. I've been around guys like that my whole uh, adult life, and that we'd sit and we debate and go back and forth, and you know, well, I think this and I think that, and 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 some people just love to do that. You got any friends like that? Are you one of those people? You know, just think, well, I just love to get into it and just talk about it. You know, I think there's a place, and that's okay. But Mary's not interested in all of that. I just want Jesus. I just want Jesus. And she's weeping outside of the tomb. And this Greek word for weeping doesn't mean, you know, just this polite, oh, no, just a little cry. No, it's the same word used for the people who wept at Lazarus' tomb. It's crying. It's Riley family funeral time you got to come to one of our funerals. I mean, that sounds a little morbid, but we do it right. I mean, we do it southern style. Downstairs, you can smell the casseroles, and there's a lot of them, but upstairs, we be crying. (laughs) And we... (gasps) You know that kind of cry? You've probably done it when you're laughing sometimes, where you laugh so much and you you know you're not supposed to, and you're trying to (laughs) get hold of yourself and not laugh. This is the same thing, except it's crying. She can't stop. It's uncontrollable. It's my Aunt Wanda all over again. I mean, it's just... <laughs> you know, and there's loud criers. and cry- I mean, she's just boo-hoo. And that's what this... She's just crying. And she's crying. Only a week before, probably thousands of people had lined the street... And they're singing, Hosanna, because they think maybe, just maybe, this guy's the one. He's Messiah. He's the Christ, the one we've been waiting for. And everybody gets in on it. You know, I mean, it's just this mob. It's just this, everybody's cheering. It's like at a ball game when everybody jumps up and you're high-fiving and you're just going nuts. Like some of you, maybe you stayed up last night and you watched some basketball and you're just dancing around your house, you know, and you're just so happy. That was the atmosphere just a week ago. But now, the only sound that can be heard is this uncontrolled crying of this one woman outside of the tomb. Other than that, everybody's gone. It's just quiet. 
she didn't even go there believing in resurrection. The fact that they took these spices along with them, you know, points to the fact that what they expected to find is a decaying body. And that's despite the fact that just in Luke's gospel, there were six resurrection predictions. I mean, they had been given a heads up. And you know how Jesus must have felt when he's saying, and on the third day I'll rise, and they're all looking at him going, ah, okay, are we going to go eat pretty soon? Because you know, it just went right by them. They didn't get it until after the fact they began to put these, these prophecies uh, together. And that just kind of strikes me as it's kind of unusual, but at the same time, I think, oh, so they were the, the first people who had to be convinced that there was resurrection were the disciples themselves. In a real sense, they were the first skeptics who had to be convinced Jesus was raised were the disciples. But once they believed it. Now the Jews were very meticulous about the observance of burial customs. And so are we. You know, I mean, we're very respectful uh, in those kind of moments and with the body of someone that's deceased that, you know, that we loved and we, you know, think about. uh, Mary felt that way, and she did not want this body to be dragged through the streets of Jerusalem. She did not want this body to be paraded around so that everybody could say, oh, look, he's not dead. Look, we got the body. Uh, she, didn't, she didn't want that. She wanted him to be honored. He was never honored in his life. She wanted him to be at least honored in his death. So she stays. She stays when nobody else will. Everybody's gone. She at least will be there. And I don't think that she ev- evaluated all the complications when she makes this statement, and she sees this person, she assumes to be the gardener. I mean, that's got to be who it is, right? It just kind of makes sense. And she says, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. And the word, the Greek word translated carried him away, is really just one word, which means... To, to take up something and remove a burden that is heavy. You know, it would be one thing to say, uh, you know, and we use the same word, but if I said, you know, I carried my Bible into the pulpit with me today. I just carried it. Okay? But if I said, you know, I'm going to carry Joe up onto the pulpit with me today. See, immediately, I'm doing something completely different, right? I'm carrying something. That's this word. What is she going to do? I mean, she didn't, even, she didn't think about it. She didn't calculate what it's going to cost her to stand by her Lord, who at this moment she still thinks is dead. How is she going to carry the dead weight of a mature man? She didn't ask how. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I'll do it. Where in that early morning garden tomb... Is she going to take him? She didn't, she didn't ask where. When, with all these Jewish spies and Roman guards hanging around and everybody, when's she going to do this? I don't know when. I don't know how, I don't know where. I'm just going to do it. 
That's all she thought. She didn't ask any of those questions. Folks, it's, it's just in our lives when we become calculating and careful that the result of resurrection it just escapes us. Have you already drawn lines beyond which you will not cross? Yeah, well, I love Jesus, but uh, I'm not going to give. Some of you, I mean, I'm not trying to call you out, but you, you never give. Or you give very little. You give sporadically. Yeah, I believe this, and I believe, uh, but I'm not, oh, I'm not going to cross that line. I'm not going to volunteer to be a part of a ministry. I'm not going to help. You see, we draw these, these lines. Yeah, I know. Because what, what's happened is you've kind of figured it out. Wow, that'll cost me this much a month, this much a year, or that's going to take up this much of my time. And we, we figure it out. And we go, nah, this is where I draw the line. I think this is why Mary saw resurrection, why she knew the power, because she said, no, what, what do you want? I'll do it. Where's the body? Let me have it. I'll figure it out later. She didn't have, have to know what's going to happen next. She's all in. And this sentence is, is noteworthy when she says, they've taken my Lord away. This little word, kurios, um, used in reference to the Lordship of Christ, it's kind of rare. It's, it's only used to address God. In fact, I've only found it twice in the entire New Testament. I only find two times. Where she says this word, it's, they've taken my Lord away. She won't be satisfied with anything but the Lord. The Lord. Not a religious experience or anything like that. And it's kind of funny to me that she's talking to angels, right? I mean, when I see an angel, whoa, I'm going to freak out. You know, she sees these two angels in there. This other guy talks to her, and she's looking around the tomb. Jesus is not here Hey, angels, I'm so great you're angels, that's awesome, but you're not Jesus. All I want is Jesus. So the Bible says she turns, and it literally means she turns her back on them. You know what those angels must have thought? Every time we appear to anybody throughout history, everybody's scared to death. And the angels thought, okay. We're about to appear to these people. You know what they're going to do. Yeah, they're going to go nuts. They're going to start crying. They're going to fall down. And we've got to tell them, hey, we're just angels. They're going to do that all the time. And they appear to Mary, and they're going like, what? What'd she do? She just turned her back on us. <laughs> I mean, she just turns out, yeah, that's great. I'm so, you angels are so cool. Hey, can you tell me where Jesus is? Because <laughs> she, she doesn't care about religious experiences, and she's not chasing that. And some of us, that's, you know, it's like we come in on a Sunday morning, we think, man, I hope the music's good today, I hope the preaching's good today, because I need a buzz, I need a fix, I need a, I need a religious experience, then I'm good for the week. Hey, God, see you next week, see you Sunday, I'll be back. Monday, Tuesday, went. I got my own deal, I got my own stuff, I got my own things I got to do. I just need a little religious experience and make my life complete. Not Mary. She's like, I'm not just here to get my spiritual tank filled up. and I, I don't need that. I, all I need is whatever's going to lead me to Jesus. I think if we had that kind of passion, we would know resurrection too. So Mary has that. And she has this attitude of, I'm going to seek him. I'm going to find Jesus, even if I never see a miracle. 
if he doesn't make me well, if he doesn't heal my mama, if I'm happy, if I'm sad, if I'm broke, if I'm doing okay, uh, I seek him, I know, maybe I feel his presence, and I just feel that cool thing where I just know he's around me, or he's, he's, it's dark and it's like he's a hundred miles away. I don't, I'm going to seek him. I haven't drawn any lines. I just want his face. He chose Mary to be the first one to witness his resurrection. Not because there's anything particular that really distinguished Mary. Uh, It wasn't her theology or her heroism. Uh, She wasn't like a brilliant intellect or any kind of a celebrity. Nobody knew her particularly. But she was the first one at that tomb when others stayed. And when others left, she stayed. And for those who stand by him, there's just a different spiritual dimension that takes place in your life that others are not going to have. And he says this first word to her that she recognizes. Now, because she doesn't get him, you know, she doesn't know who he is. But then he says, Miriam. He just says her name, Miriam. She's just crying. And I imagine her crying starts all over again. <laughs> you know, it's like, <gasps> oh, no, she's on a crying jack. Here she goes again. And she just starts crying all over. And she just falls down and just grabs his feet. And, she's, and he says, stop touching me, which is a little weird because in just a couple of days, that's exactly the thing he will tell Thomas to do. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. I'm, I haven't ascended yet. But then when Thomas comes along, he goes, hey, you need to touch me and figure it's me. Touch me. So do you want to be touched or not? Really, the word means stop clinging to me. Stop grabbing me and grasping and holding on. And Jesus is about to to teach her something. He says, you don't need my physical presence anymore. Mary, you're going to know me now in a new dimension, in a different way than you've ever known me before. The next night, he will appear to the disciples in the upper room. And Scripture tells us at the end of this passage that he breathed on them and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And the Jesus that they had been with was now within them. And he is within us. Guys, you don't need this room. and You don't need me or anything else to know him to have him because he says your name he says your name he had said i call my sheep by name and they hear me and they know me when he said her name maybe in aramaic or or in hebrew it would have been close to the same thing Remember when Jesus said my name on an Easter Sunday night? He says, don't be afraid. I've redeemed you and I've called you by my name. Something beautiful began to unfold as the sun came up and, and the dawn. And in this moment... 
Mary knew that all these promises that he had made her were coming true. When he said, I will come to you, and she thought, you dead? When he said, after a while, the world won't see me anymore, but you'll see me, and she thought, I do. And he said, your heart will rejoice because no one will be able to ever take your joy away from you again. And she said, it's happening. It's happening. And this is the place where my story and your story and Mary's story intersect. Because sometimes I've thought, wow, if I could just go back to Bible days, if I could see him doing those things and be around him, I think it would be so much easier for me to believe. So, you know, I would have faith then. He goes, no, that's exactly the thing I don't want. I don't want you clinging to me physically or even historically or even just all you know about Jesus is, is like in the Bible and this is, this is the, the, the foundation of my life right here. But you know, it's, it, this, is, this points me to him, the living reality who lives within me, Jesus. And that's what he wants. He wants you to know him in a different way. More than just, I had read the book I'd been to church. I knew other Christians. Intellectually, I believed the information. But it's when I called on him by faith and he said my name. And he gave me my identity that I abandoned trying to hold on to him in all these other ways and just knew him by faith. And that's what he wants. That's what resurrection is all about. So that the Jesus that was with us for just a while can now be within us. He wants to live in you. Not just with you. I don't know what brought you into this room this morning. I I don't know. But I hope you wouldn't go through just religious activities and miss the point like these guys did. Peter and John just went home. Mary got to see Jesus and got to know resurrection. That's what he wants for you. Not just to go to lunch and not just to go home but to have Jesus. I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to do a song together, and I don't do this often, but I'm going to give you this opportunity that if you have never come to that place, you're saying, Jesus, I don't know a lot about you, or maybe I know a ton of information, but I don't think you're within me. He wants to be. And he changes everything. He just changes everything. Father, I thank you for today and I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you're alive. And I thank you that Jesus is risen. And that he wouldn't just be here with us physically, but you want to live within us. Live in us today. In Jesus' name.